Thank you so much uh, to my illustrious cousin, Dr. Johnny Hel- Rabbi Dr. Johnny Hellman. I'd also like to thank, of course, uh, Molly Resnick for all of her amazing uh, work as director of the Senior Social Clubs of KAJ. And I'd like to thank all of you for attending this evening's shir. Letters are a fascinating thing. Uh, there's been many books written about letters in general, written by uh, presidents and kings and uh, famous people, but I had a distinct fascination with letters that were written by G'dayla Yisrael, by great Jewish leaders. And as Mashkiach Ruchani of Lander College for Men in Kew Garden Hills, New York, many years ago, I would say over uh, about 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago, I gave a weekly, what we call a VAD, which is like a Musser class at night, and I chose a topic that I thought would be interesting for the Talmidim, for the students, and it was called Letters of G'dayla Yisrael, Letters of, uh, of Jewish Torah Giants. And every week what I did was I found a different letter, I photocopied it, and we would learn it together, me and my class, uh, and focus every week on a single letter uh, by a different gadol. And we found it very inspirational because a letter is unique in that it gives you a different slant at the gadol. You're not learning his, his Torah, his scholarship, but you're seeing him from a very personal angle. Sometimes he's writing a letter to a relative. Sometimes he, he's writing it to another gadol. Sometimes he's writing it to a family member at a very personal moment in his life. And so you get to see an, an entirely uh, different view and feel of the, of the rabbi, of the gadol, uh, that really you would probably be unaware of were it not for the letters that we are able to still have in the archives of Klal Yisrael. At the end of that year, this one of my students uh, said to me, you know, it was such a, a wonderful year, and we learned so much, and I think that it would be a wonderful contribution to Torah literature if you could actually put all these letters together and put them in a book. So I liked the idea, and I, uh, I wrote out a few uh, sample translated letters with introductions, and I went over to Arts Girl Studios to um, uh, Rabbi Zlatowicz, Rabbi Meir Zlatowicz, Zechreinu Levracha, and who I had somewhat of a relationship with. I had written a few other uh, books for Art Scroll before that. And I said that I would love to write a book together with Art Scroll entitled Great Jewish Letters. And he loved the idea. In fact, he said that he had the same idea years earlier, but he didn't have somebody to actually write it. And together we envisioned a, uh, a beautiful coffee table book with full-color graphics and photographs and, and the actual original copies of the letters whenever that was possible to, uh, to obtain, uh, and of course portraits of the G'daylam themselves. And this is what we did. So we, we found 120 really special, unique letters, and we published it in a, in a volume called Great Jewish Letters. And that was, um, that was put out around, uh, around 11 years ago, I believe, um, and that was the first Baruch Hashem in a long series of other uh, of other books that I wrote, also with a great Jewish title, 
uh, on different things, on on uh, quotes of Gedalim, on their speeches, on their treasures, which is their artifacts, uh, their their classic Svarim called Great Jewish Classics this year, Hanukkah time, and that was the previous shir that I was uh, that I merited to give for this august audience for this uh, group. Thanks to Mali Resnick. Um, on Kivrit Sadikim, on the great uh, burial grounds of Gedalim. But tonight what I wanted to speak about was particularly the letters that pertain to the Holy Land, to Eretz Yisrael. And it's an entire chapter in the book, and I hand-selected maybe four or five letters, we'll see if we have the time um, to do even that much, but just to give you a little flavor of what Gedalim wrote pertaining to Eretz Yisrael. And I think it's a very timely topic because we just finished laning yesterday Parshas Shlach, and Parshas Shlach, of course, deals with the Meraglim, the spies that were sent by Moshe Rabbeinu into Eretz Yisrael to give a report back about the state of the, of the land and its conquerability, and, of course, we know that it didn't end too well. The Meraglim uh, came back not just with a very bad report, but a very negative um, slant and a spin on it. The Ramban writes that they really didn't do anything wrong by reporting what they saw. That's, that was their mission. But the fact that they said the word Ephes, Ephes ki az ha'am, that it's impossible to do, we're not going to be able to conquer this land, that was something that went above and beyond what their task was. They were editorializing at that point what they felt was the uh, ability for Klal Yisrael to conquer Eretz Yisrael, and that was a very grave error that they made. And because of that, uh, we are still in Gullus. We had uh, two Churban Bate Mikdash on Tishabav, which was the day that the Meraglim came back with that scathing report. And many, many other tragic events always take place, Rahman al-Islam, on Tishabab as a result of this. But Yeshua and Kalev, they were the defenders of Eretz Yisrael. They were the Gedalia Yisrael that were also sent in as part of this mission. And they came back with a completely different report. And they said, in a few words, they said, Taiva ha'aretz ma'id ma'id. This land is an exceptionally, exceptionally good land. And we're going to describe today through Gedalim throughout the ages, Rishainim and Achreinim, how they too always perceived Eretz Yisrael as being a wonderful place, even in times that were not so wonderful in history, but yet they always saw, like Yeshua and Kalev did, the good of the land. The first letter that we're going to discuss is a letter that was written by the Ramban, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman. The Ramban, um, I'm sure all of you are familiar with him. He's also known as Nachmanides. He was a, uh, one of the greatest of our Rishinim. He lived from 1194 to 1270. He was a Spanish uh, Torah scholar. He was uh, a leader of the community in Spain. And when he was forced to leave Spain, he, at the age of 72, made Aliyah, he moved to Eretz Yisrael. And when he got to Eretz Yisrael, he sent a very 
beautiful, precious letter to his son Nachman. Now, the Ramban's name was Rav Moshe ben Nachman, and he named his son Nachman after his father. Sfardim named even after living parents. I don't know if you named him when he was still alive, his father, or maybe after he died, I'm not sure. But his name was Nachman, like that of the, of the Ramban's father. And the Ramban writes, at this, uh, at this terrible time in the history of Eretz Yisrael, it was a very desolate place. Today, when we think of Eretz Yisrael, we think of, of technology and beautiful buildings and high-tech and, uh, and state-of-the-art hotels and, and, and transportation and beautiful airport. Back then, it's hard to imagine, but Eretz Yisrael and Yerushalayim in particular was completely desolate. There were practically no Jews living in Yerushalayim at the time. And at this juncture, the Ramban, even though it was so desolate, he sees hope. And he describes Eretz Yisrael as being also exceedingly good. And let me just read to you a few uh, short paragraphs that the Ramban writes to Nachman, his son. He says, May Hashem bless you, my son Nachman, to see the good of Yerushalayim and live to see your children's children. May your table be as that of our forefather Avram. I am writing this letter to you from the holy city of Yerushalayim. With praise and gratitude to the rock of my salvation, I arrived here safely on the ninth day of the month of Elul. I shall remain in Yerushalayim in peace until the day after Yom Kippur, when I intend to visit Hebron, burial city of our ancestors. I will pray at their graves and prepare a burial site for myself with the help of God. Now, just parenthetically, we don't know exactly where the Ramban is buried. It's a very big source of uh, debate amongst the scholars. Where is the Ramban buried? So some want to say that the Ramban is probably buried in Hebron because he writes here in this letter that that's where he intended to prepare a burial site for himself. However, others say that it might have been not, he might not have ever really purchased a land in Hebron, but rather it was either in Yerushalayim, Akko, or Haifa. Those were different opinions, and it's interesting that in the 1970s, they found a seal near Akko of the Ramban. There's a famous um, stamp of the Ramban uh, that was, uh, if you look actually, if you ever see the art scroll Ramban, there is an embossed um, stamp, like an insignia on the cover, and you'll notice that that is the seal of the Ramban. It says, Moshe ben Nachman Chai, I believe it says. And that's an amazing discovery that they found. It's, it's currently housed in, uh, in the Israel Museum, I believe. And uh, it's, a, it's fascinating that they were able to unearth of all the seals of people living in Eretz Yisrael, that of the Ramban. But then he says the following. He says, what can I say regarding the state of the Holy Land. The destruction is widespread and its desecration is extreme. The general rule is that the more sacred the place, the greater the devastation it has suffered. Yerushalayim is the most desolate place of all and the land of Yehuda more desolate than the Galilee. But despite all its ruin, it is still an exceedingly good land. The Ramban goes on to say how he was buying 
uh, a shul in Yerushalayim. If anyone ever has been in the old city, uh, they might have passed by or even entered the Ramban's shul. Uh, it's right behind the Churva synagogue. And uh, that was actually purchased by the Ramban, and he started a minion there. Now, just about this line that the Ramban writes in his letter about this rule of thumb that in Hebrew the words are that whatever is more sacred, any part of Eretz Yisrael that's more sacred is more desolate, is more ruined. And Yerushalayim is, of course, the holiest part of Eretz Yisrael, and that's the most desecrated, that's the most desolate. So it sounds like it's a terrible curse that the Ramban is pointing out. But I I believe that the Ramban, if you study his work on Chumash, the Ramban writes something that I think really sheds light on that particular excerpt of this letter. Because the Ramban says that on a Pasuk in the Teichacha that we learned a few weeks ago, that the enemy will find it desolate, meaning... The, the Ramban says that there is a special promise and a special segula that Eretz Yisrael has that enemies are not able to conquer it. It's a crazy thing. Yerushalayim is a beautiful city. Eretz Yisrael is a beautiful country. You would think that all those years that the Jews were not living there, they were not a, a dominant force or a presence there, that many of the nations of the world would come in and conquer it but yet they didn't. Yet they found themselves, for whatever reason, either unable to conquer it or uninterested in conquering it, or when they were about to conquer it, something happened. And that was a proof, says the Ramban, that Hashem is protecting and overseeing Eretz Yisrael, and He's keeping it for us. He's safeguarding it for the Jewish people. So even when there are times that we were banished from the land because of our sins, as the Tochachah speaks out very clearly, that the land will actually spit us out if we're not acting appropriately there. But yet the land is sort of bookmarked and saved for the Jewish people. So the fact that it was more, the holier the places in Eretz Yisrael, the more desolate, that's a very beautiful proof that it is an exceedingly good land. It's a land that Hashem is protecting, and the holier and the more uh, the more desirable the area, the more desolate, the more that the Gaim feel that it was unable to be taken over, or that they weren't they went there and they weren't interested in taking over because Hashem made it in such a way that it seemed unattractive to them, even though today of course they claim that they were always interested in having it. The next letter that I wanted to discuss with you is a letter called the Igeris Hagra, the letter of the Vilna Gain. The Vilna Gain was uh, arguably the greatest Torah scholar in the past uh, 300 years, 400 years. He was, his, the years of his life were 1720 to 1797. He lived, of course, in Vilna. He knew everything. And when I say everything, I don't mean just Torah. He knew, and he, there, it's written very clearly in certain uh, introductions in the Pasach Olchan, he, he writes about the Vilna Gain once saying that he made a siyam on Kala Kula. On the entirety of Torah, he made a siyam, he made a, a, like a, a su'uda, a festive meal, because he completed the Torah. But he says he didn't just complete the Torah. 
He completed all subjects, all studies, all disciplines in the world. So he was an expert in science, and he was an expert in mathematics, and he was an expert in physiology, and he was an expert in music. And there were a few exceptions. He didn't learn exactly uh, medicine because his father felt that if he would know medicine, he would have to be a doctor and he'd have to help people. It would take away from his learning. He also didn't, uh, he didn't speak too highly of philosophy. He felt that it was uh, a waste of time. He, didn't, he wasn't uh, too enamored by philosophy. But basically, he was an expert in all fields. And he said that he used all these fields in order to understand the Torah, because he says you need a lot of disciplines in order to really fully comprehend uh, certain Gemaras and certain uh, Talmudic uh, concepts, uh, building Erevin, building a Sukkah, building a Mikvah, all of these things require tremendous mathematical knowledge. Uh, Kiddush HaChadesh had to, had to understand the moon and the cycles of the moon and the sun, and all of these were things that the Volna Gain was fluent in, uh, in a very, very amazing way. At one point in the Volna Gain's life, he decided that he wants to pick himself up and move to Eretz Yisrael. And he wrote a famous letter, which is called the Igaris Hagra, the letter of the Vilna Gain, and it's very widely uh, published, very widely disseminated. You could find it uh, on many sources. If you Google it on the internet, uh, you'd be able to find many, many different versions of it. Um, he wrote it from the city of Konigsberg, and he addressed it to his wife and his family, his mother as well. And it basically is a Musser Safer. It's, it's not just a normal letter. It really, uh, it's, it's a letter that's replete with the Vilna Gain's way of looking at the world and looking at life and his hashkafa, his outlook, as far as how you should raise children, um, women going to shul, women, uh, um, you know, whether that's a good idea for women to go to shul or sometimes they'll see other women wearing uh, fancy clothing and they might get jealous and it might lead to, to jealousy and Lashon Hara. Um, it's a fascinating, fascinating letter. Uh, there are many commentators that have written commentary on this letter, but I just want to start with the beginning part of the letter because it pertains to Eretz Yisrael. And he writes to his, his wife and his children and his mother, I ask you to refrain from becoming sad as you promised me, and not to worry. It is common for men to leave their wives in order to travel and wander destitute for years to make money, meaning men leave all the time to go on business trips, and, uh, and they don't come back for a long time. Today in the jet age, it's much easier to come back and forth, but back in the olden days, there was uh, people would leave and maybe come back many years later. They would go on very far away journeys, and they would do a lot of business, and they would come back, and uh, it could take many, many years. So the Vilna Gain is saying to his wife, I know that you're you know, not happy that I'm leaving, but I, I shouldn't be any different than a regular person who's going on a business trip. Don't look at it like, oh, he's going to Eretz Yisrael. Look at it like he's going on a business trip. He says, but I, Baruch Hashem, am traveling to the Holy Land, which everyone longs to see, the Jewish people's cherished place, as well as Hashem's. And I am traveling in peace, Baruch Hashem. You are also aware that I have left behind my children for whom my heart mourns and all of my precious books 
and I am as a stranger in a foreign country. Yes, I have left everything behind. And this is basically, and then he goes into the Musser part of his letter, but it's an amazing thing that the Vilna Gain picked himself up just to be able to travel to Eretz Yisrael because he yearned to see and to walk and to kiss the stones of Eretz Yisrael. And we know that, unfortunately, for some mysterious reason, he turned around. He aborted his mission in the middle. He never made it to Eretz Yisrael. It's a very, also a big subject of debate. I once read a whole scholarly uh, book about, you know, different theories about why exactly the Vilna Gain turned around in the middle of this voyage to Eretz Yisrael. Um, it's not too clear whether it was halachic reasons, whether he felt he couldn't properly keep uh, Trumas and Meisters in Eretz Yisrael, the different, uh, the different um, offerings that a person has to, has to take from his various fruits and crops in Eretz Yisrael. Some people say there was a mystical reason behind it. He didn't feel it was an opportune time for him to go to Eretz Yisrael. Some people say that there were actually rodents on the boat that he was on, and they were, uh, uh, you know, he was afraid of uh, something to do with them. Different theories that are that are mentioned in the in car, but no one really knows for sure what the reason is. But what we do know is that the Vilna Gain had such a longing and a yearning to go to Eretz Yisrael, and we know that he did not make it there. But the good news is that even though he himself did not reach the Holy Land but he would inspire his Talmidim, his disciples, to do so. And they led the way for the Ashkenazi settling of the land in the early 19th century. We know that there was many waves of Talmide Hagra, the Vilna Gain students, that did in fact make it to the shores of Eretz Yisrael, and they built up the Ashkenazi communities in many different cities in Eretz Yisrael. And even till today, the Minag Hagra, the minig of the Vilna Gain is prevalent in practically all the Ashkenazic communities in Eretz Yisrael. And this is all because of the major impact that his Talmidim had when they journeyed uh, themselves. They followed their Rebbe's course, and they were successful, actually, in arriving in Eretz Yisrael, and they made an actual change in the entire climate, the religious climate in Eretz Yisrael. And till today... Um, there are still these ramifications of this letter of the Vilna Gain. Another letter that I wanted to share with you, a beautiful letter, is written by the Chazanish. The Chazanish was Rabbi Avram Yeshaya Karelitz, one of the great Torah leaders of Eretz Yisrael. Uh, he was a Tamad Chacham that was unparalleled in his time, uh, he was. Uh, he lived from 1878 to 1953, and he led the religious community in Eretz Yisrael. He was based out of Bnei Brak, but his his influence was really spread throughout the entire land and beyond. The Vilna, the the Chazanish, was very poetic. He had a beautiful way of writing. If anyone ever sees what's called the Igris Chazanish, uh, there's a two volume set by that name, and it has beautiful letters, collection of letters uh, that the, was written by the Chazanish in a unique, um, a unique uh, way of writing that is sophisticated and elegant and beautiful and poetic all at once. So he writes something that's very, uh, almost like, a, you know, very current. 
because we are on the precipice of a Shemitah year in Eretz Yisrael. This coming Rosh Hashanah is going to start yet another Shemitah year, and you probably see in the Jewish newspapers a lot of ads for organizations such as Karen Ashvias that advertises, you know, supporting farmers uh, in this very trying year for them in Eretz Yisrael. Imagine if whatever profession you're in, uh, you would have to stop for an entire year and take a sabbatical. It sounds nice, but uh, it doesn't always work out that way, and uh, uh, sabbaticals sound a lot better than they are, and a lot of times, you know, towards the end of the year, uh, you're found without a profession, without a job, and uh, and this is what farmers are expected to do every seven years in Eretz Yisrael. So there are organizations that are trying to raise money so that the farmers should be able to uh, make it through the seventh year. Uh, they're allowed to plant in the sixth year, of course, but then they cannot plant in the seventh year. And so the, the hope is that the amount of food that they were able to gather in the sixth year will last not just for the seventh year, but also part of the eighth year until the new crops of the eighth year uh, begin to grow and they could pick those. So there's a very big uh, controversy every Shemitah year since the founding of the State of Israel whether or not they should uh, or should not rely on what's called the Heter Mechira. Heter Mechira is a uh, sort of like what we do with the Chametz on Erev Pesach. We sell it uh, through the rabbi to a non-Jew, and thereby it's sort of like a legal loophole that we're able to keep our Chametz in our house, locked up, of course, but, uh, but yet we're able to immediately have them again after Pesach just by virtue of the fact that we're selling it to a non-Jew before Pesach and we're buying it back post-Pesach. So what some rabbis felt was a good idea because you know here we have a whole country that the main, the main uh, industry is agriculture and how are you going to be able to survive B'derach HaTeva in a natural way without without planting for a full year. So they said, you know, we have a good idea. Let's sell the whole land to an Arab and and then we could do our work on it because the Arab technically owns the land. So it's not like we're plowing on our own field. That's Shemitah. You can't plant on and plow on your own field, but you could surely plant on a on a guy's field, on a non-Jew's field. So that's what they wanted to do. But many of the G'daylam in Eretz Yisrael and at their helm, the Chazanish, felt very strongly that that is not acceptable and that we are not supposed to do it and that the farmers have to not work on the, on the Shemitah year, period. So the Chazanish wrote a beautiful letter and he formulated it as if he was a farmer himself during Shemitah. He was the Gadol Adar. He was the master of the entire Torah. But he wrote a letter as if he was a farmer and I want to just read to you uh, it's a short letter. Permit me to read it to you. This is by the pen of the Chazanish. I am a farmer who earns his livelihood through working in the land. The year of Shemitah has arrived, and I, as a member of the stubborn nation, have stubbornly determined in my heart to keep the Shemitah year in complete accordance with Halacha. I was all alone, a laughingstock of my neighbors. Is it possible, they chided, to neither plant nor harvest? How can you argue with reality? My stubbornness, however, prevailed. Despite the claim that any person in his right mind knows that you cannot observe Shemitah, 
that surely Shemitah must have been intended only for those with enough grain in their silos to last for three years, that our generation is different than past ones. In spite of all these arguments, a half year has passed already, and reality has lovingly embraced me. I planted everything prior to Rosh Hashanah during the sixth year, and during the seventh year I sat idle. I have nearly neither plowed nor sowed. The crops from the sixth year that continued growing into the seventh year, I have treated with the sanctity of Shemitah, and I consumed them in accordance with the laws of this sanctity. I hope that I will come to terms with reality, or more accurately, that reality will come to terms with me in the remaining half year. My neighbors who ridiculed me have plowed and sowed during the Shemitah, but reality fought them with spiteful wrath, and all their crops have been wiped out through torrential downpours of rain. My sincere request to those who permit work to be done this year is to please forgive me for my disobedience. Perhaps they might consider re-examining the matter. Upon rethinking the issue, their minds just might conclude that the Torah is unchangeable, that observance of Shemitah depends solely on the will to do so. That was a beautiful letter that was written by the Chazanish with a powerful message to those that dare uh, feel that Shemitah is something of the past and that it does not fit the reality of the present. The last letter that I'd like to share with you this evening about the special nature of Eretz Yisrael from the eyes of Gedalim is a short letter that was written on a postcard by Rabbi Yisrael Zev Gustman. Rabbi Yisrael Zev Gustman was um, a brilliant scholar. He was a student of Rabbi Shimon Shkop in Grodno, and at the age of 19, he attained the prestigious position of Dayan on the Vilna Bestin of Reb Chaim It's an amazing uh, ability for a 19-year-old. Imagine a 19-year-old. Today, a 19-year-old is like so wet behind the ears. He was already able to be on the most prestigious Bestin in the world, the Bestin of Reb Chaim He once said that much later in his life that he doesn't need any covet. He doesn't need any covet. Why? Because he was once at a Knesia Gedaila, at one of the great conventions that were held in Europe with all of the Gedailim and many, many, you know, hundreds of Jews that came to attend. And when he came into the room a little late, into one of the sessions, so Reb Chaim Eiser, who was the head of the best that he was on, saw him come in. He was 19 years old, Rav Gustman. And Reb Chaim Eiser stood up for him. When Reb Chaim Eiser stood up for him, the, the Chavitz Chaim, who was sitting on the dais, also stood up for him. And when the Chavitz Chaim stood up for him, the entire assemblage stood up for him. He said, since that moment in my life, I have no need, I killed my Yitzhahara for Kavit. I have no need for Kavit anymore because you can't top that. Once you get the, the Chavetz Chaim, Reb Chaim Eiser, and an entire assembly of people to stand up for you at 19, you're good. You're done. You're, you're, you're fine for the rest of your life. So, and then when the Nazis invaded Vilna, they beat Rav Gustman brutally. Miraculously, he was spared. He became a partisan in the uh, fighter in the forest of Eastern Europe. And in 1961, Rav Gustman moved to and he reestablished his yeshiva in the Rechavia section of Yerushalayim. And 
there he wrote a postcard to an old friend of his, and he described the amazing ability for him to be so connected to Hashem in Eretz Yisrael. That being in Eretz Yisrael, being able to learn Torah in Eretz Yisrael was something that was an unparalleled experience for him. And he writes as follows. I'm just going to take a little bit out of the letter. He says, I can't describe the preciousness of living in the Holy Land and especially Yerushalayim. He said, here in Eretz Yisrael, the distractions and the temptations that are prevalent in Chutzlaretz, they are not here. I don't have that distraction uh, that I had in Chutzlaretz. I just don't have it when I'm here in Eretz Yisrael. He says, in the physical world, one cannot compare the life of wealth to the life of poverty. If a person is wealthy, you can't compare that in terms of a lifestyle to somebody that is not wealthy. You can't compare somebody that's young to somebody that's not young. A person who's young can enjoy life a lot more in a certain way than an older person. And the same is true in the spiritual world. One cannot compare the life of a Bentera whose learning is his primary occupation to one who learns for a limited time each day. One cannot compare the life of a pious person who strives to enhance his observance of mitzvahs as much as possible to one who practices them merely by rote. Therefore, he says, if one wishes to truly experience living in our holy land, he should immerse himself completely in Torah study and mitzvah observance with love and affection in the holy Yerushalayim. This will enable him to soar freely and to connect with the eternal life which lasts forever. And then he, he signed off the letter, your close friend who seeks your welfare, Yisrael Zev Gusman. But this is such a, a valuable letter, it's such a treasure, because what Gusman is saying is that people that move to Eretz Yisrael, if they're moving for the right reasons, there's nothing like it. If you're moving to Eretz Yisrael because you can get a good job there, or because you want to live basically like a life that you did in America, just transplant that life and the cultures that sometimes we engage in here, and you want to just... That's not really the ideal life of somebody that's moving to Israel. You know, somebody once came to Rav Hutner, and he said that he's planning on making Aliyah. Told Rav Hutner, Yitzhak Hutner, the Rashiv of Chaimblin, that he's planning on making Aliyah. So Rav Hutner, who was very sharp, and very brilliant, said the following to him. He said, you know, we know that there is like a bracha that you give, let's say, if somebody has a yard site, so you give a bracha that that the neshama should have an aliyah, that the, that the person's neshama should have an aliyah. He says, I give you a bracha that your aliyah, your aliyah should have a neshama, meaning that it shouldn't be just an aliyah for the sake of, you know, eating pizza and, uh, you know, and, 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 and doing whatever you're doing in America, just moving that overseas to the Holy Land. But it's important for people that when they're moving to Eretz Yisrael, that they step up their game, as it were, that they become very religious and, and every step that you take is a mitzvah, but it's also, it's an opportunity that we have to try to, make ourselves holier by living in Eretz Yisrael. We shouldn't bring 
Toma to Eretz but we should make sure that our Aliyah has an Neshama, that there is purity in our Aliyah. Rav Gusman saw the unique opportunity of living in Eretz Yisrael, particularly in light of being able to learn Torah and learn Torah very deeply in a way that is really... I'm not saying you're, you can't learn Torah deeply in Chutzlaretz, you certainly can, but you see the wonders of, uh, of people that, you know, one of the, the great miracles of our time is that maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago, there became a, uh, a movement to, during the gap year between high school and college, or uh, high school and base medrash, that people went to Eretz Yisrael to study for a year, and then it became two years. Some people became three, four years. And it, it completely transformed the generations because when you're able to learn in Eretz Yisrael and you don't have the same distractions that you do in America, you don't have the same technology that you do in America, you don't have the same uh, Yetzirah that you do in America, and you're able to have the Avira Dara de Yisrael, the pure air, the pure atmosphere of Kedushas Eretz Yisrael, then a person is able to really grow in a way that he never or she never was able to grow in America and would not be able to grow. And generations of, of Jews became much different. Their trajectory of life became so much more religious and so much more rich with their heritage and with Limanat Torah and Asiyas HaMitzvahs that all because they were able to be exposed to this ability to, to sit and study Torah in Eretz Yisrael. And the combination of those two things is really, it's a miracle combination. Something special happens almost every time it's tried. And Rav Gustman is saying that you can't, comp- you can't compare learning Torah in America, in Chutzlar, it's as you can in Eretz Yisrael. And the ability to do mitzvahs and learn Torah deeply in Eretz Yisrael, he says, is something that enables him and his neshama to soar freely and connect to a chayim hanitzchim, an eternal life, and it's such a, a beautiful, um, beautiful letter. I was just thinking, just as a to end, that you know the end of Parsha Shlach is the Parsha of Tzitzis, and I think perhaps in light of Rav Gusman's letter, we can have a little bit of an understanding of why Tzitzis sort of ends the story of the Meraglim because. What we lost because of the Miraglim was the opportunity to go, to go into Eretz Yisrael. Why do we want to go into Eretz Yisrael? What was the point of going into Eretz Yisrael? The point of Eretz Yisrael was in order to do the mitzvahs of Hashem. The Gemara in Saita says, do you think Meish Rabbeinu was dying to go into Eretz Yisrael to eat the fruits? Do you think he wanted to taste a sabra and a, and a pomegranate? That's why Meish Rabbeinu wanted to go? No, he wanted to do the mitzvahs of Eretz Yisrael. That's why he went into, that's why he so craved going into Eretz Yisrael. The mitzvah of tzitzis is something that is a manifestation of all the mitzvahs of Hashem. You're supposed to look at the tzitzis, remember all the mitzvahs, and commit yourself to doing them. And there's no more perfect place to commit yourself to doing all the mitzvahs of Hashem then Hashem's holy land that HaKadosh Baruch Hu sets his eyes upon constantly, is concerned about, gives Shmira divine protection to, and that's why I think Tzitzit is the perfect way to conclude 
the, the tragedy of the Miraglim, because tzitzis is really the purpose of Eretz Yisrael. The embodiment of mitzvahs in Eretz Yisrael is something that is uh, really uh, the most precious gift that HaKadosh Baruch Hu could ever give to Kali Yisrael. I'd like to thank you all very, very much for joining me this evening, and I hope you all gained a new appreciation uh, seeing Eretz Yisrael through the holy eyes of our G'day Yisrael.